You can be seated and turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians 3. As we've been walking through Colossians, we have seen clearly who Christ is, as clear as any other book in the Bible. Colossians puts the spotlight uh, focused, just laser beam intensity on the person, the reality of Christ and his work. And we've seen clearly the supremacy of Christ, how the person and work of Christ is far superior to anything offered to these believers by the false teachers or anything that's offered to us today in our culture that other than Christ. Now, there's nothing like Christ. There's nothing superior to Christ. And we've come now to, in chapter 3, this very practical section of how to live out these truths about Christ. God has to move from being a concept, an idea. God has to become a reality. He has to become something that we experience. He can't just be propositional truth that you say, well, this is true. He has to become a person you have a relationship with in which you are experiencing the truths that we say are true. And so let's, uh, let's see the passage today, beginning in verse 12, Colossians 3. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Father, I confess this morning my absolute dependency on you to speak to us. I can uh, say words that have been written out, but only you can speak to hearts that will transform us. And so I, I confess how much I need you. I need you to do today and us what only you can do. Father, I, I pray for us. We come to this gathering. We come to this place in our hearts, our minds, or in um, dozens of, of places. Some are carrying heaviness. Some are carrying brokenness, guilt, hurt, pain. Father, there's, there's apathy, there's complacency, there's all these things that we bring to the table. And so, Father, I pray and ask that, that you would speak, the Holy Spirit would speak these words of truth to each and every person in a way that they hear, they see, they receive, and they believe and are changed by you alone. For your glory alone, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, here in chapter 3, we begin to see that for those who have died with Christ, have been raised with Christ, that we are a people for whom it, was, it is said, Christ is your life. That's how much 
We identify with Christ. That's how much our identity comes from Christ. That in verse 4, chapter 3, it says Christ is our life. And so we live with this upper perspective. We're not setting our mind on things of the earth. We're setting our mind on things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of the Father. Christ is the focus of our life. Christ is the energy of our life. Christ is the goal of our life. And we learned a couple of weeks ago, therefore we are people who kill sin in us in whatever form it takes. Not only do we crush the actions and attitudes that are sinful, but we go beyond that to look at the idolatry behind the sins we commit to crush those idols as well. And we are this new people created and being shaped in the new image that we have in Christ. We, we have an identity from Christ that transcends any other way we characterize ourselves. And we come to this passage, which is, is one of those passages where you see this listing of qualities that we as believers long to have said about us. Like we read this and, and you're like, man, I want to be that person. I mean, even non-believers see value in some of these qualities. Like that, it would be great if society were, were made up of people who were characterized as compassionate and kind and humble and meek and patient. And loving and forgiving. But especially for a Christian, this is who you want to be. So what I want to help us guard against is, is a few potential responses that sometimes we'll, we'll take to a passage like this. Because we, we have to see that becoming this person characterized by these qualities is driven by the gospel. It flows out of the gospel. And because of our flesh... We have a tendency to look at a list like this and, and go in, in, in one of four different directions. And there might be more, but, but here's four possible bad responses to seeing a list like this. The, one person could, could look at a list like this and just say, eh, that's kind of impossible. I just can't, that just can't be me. Like, I don't see that happening. There's just too much work that needs to be done. So my response is kind of apathetic, complacent. I, I just don't think it can, it can happen. You know, if God wants to produce that in me, great. He's going to have to do it. Just let go and let God, right? But I don't, if, if it requires a lot of effort on my part, if I've got to do anything, then eh, that's really not for me. Another bad response is the person who sees this list, and you've actually tried to be this person. Like you've attempted it, and you've failed. And so all you see when you see this list is more failure. Like, I've tried to be the compassionate, kind, and humble person, but all I do is mess it up and hurt people. So I don't really want to try again because I'm just going to fail again, and I'm just kind of in despair. Another bad response to this list is somebody who sees this and they say, well, that pretty much characterizes my life. That's kind of like, that's me. You know, I see a lot of these qualities in me, especially if I compare myself to the people around me. So this person doesn't struggle with apathy or despair. They struggle with self-righteousness. Because they've watered down these definitions to a degree that they think it defines their life. And then, and then the fourth bad response is the person who sees this list and their response is, okay, I got a plan. Step one, step two, step three. Here I go. Watch. Watch me make this happen in my life. And so this is a person who struggles with works righteousness. Because they're naturally a disciplined person. They're going to make it happen. And here I'm going to follow my steps and I'm going to chart it out on a graph. And voila, over time I'll be a compassionate and kind person. None of those are responses that are driven by the gospel or in response to the gospel. The gospel has to drive the transformation that we're supposed to experience as believers. And gospel-driven transformation will crush those wrong responses and will humbly find that over time, 
As God's people, we will demonstrate the character of Christ, the conduct of Christ, and the presence of Christ. That this is who God will make us to be. So first, see how this passage begins, and it's really key. It's really key. Verse 12, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Put on, speaking of qualities like clothing, we'll come back to that later. Put on then, it could also say therefore, in light of what he's been saying in the previous 11 verses, as God's chosen, holy, and beloved people. Incredible words of identity, incredible words of security that have to settle in you first. Like, you've got to get this first. If you don't get this, you might as well not listen to the rest of the sermon. You've got to understand these words of identity and security about who you are in Christ. You are chosen. You are chosen. You ever been the last one picked on kickball? Or the last one picked at softball? That's not how it works with God. You are chosen by God. God chose you to be a part of his people long before you ever chose him. He is the initiator. This speaks to his sovereignty over salvation. God not only is the initiator of physical life, God is the initiator of redemption. Spiritual life. God came after us. Be careful when you try and soften this word by saying things like, well, God chose everyone and then every person has to make their own choice so ultimately the determination ends up in our court. Or God looked through the courts of time and he simply just chose those that he knew would choose him. See, we want to soften this aspect of God, kind of turn God into this nice grandpa in the sky because it seems mean to us that God would choose some and not choose all. And so we've got to help God out, help his image out. It doesn't look good if we say that God chose some and not everyone, right? Be careful about softening this aspect of God because what happens when you do that is you end up making man the final determiner of salvation. If God is only choosing those who choose him, if God is choosing everyone and ultimately we make the final decision, then salvation is really up to me. And if salvation is up to me, then I can take credit for some aspect of my salvation. If I can take credit for it, then I've done part of it. Therefore, I get part of the glory. I get part of the worship. I can stand before God one day and say, hey, I I did some of that. You didn't do it all. But the language of the New Testament is very clear that, that, that salvation is a work of God. God made us alive in Christ Jesus. God calls us from the dead. We were Lazarus in the tomb. We were spiritually dead. God calls us, gives us life, gives us the gift of faith, gives us repentance, everything we need. And then we respond only after we're alive. God is the initiator. God is the doer of salvation. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. The question is not, why does God choose some and not others? The question is, why does God choose anybody to be saved? When you see the holiness of God, when you see the sinfulness of God, the fact that God chose one person to be saved is incredibly gracious and merciful. But but he's saving billions. He's saving us all the time. All of us only deserve death. We don't know who the elect are. Our job is not to figure out who the elect are. Our job is to proclaim the gospel. Proclaim the gospel to all nations among all peoples. How do you know if you're part of the elect? How do you know if you're part of the chosen? Well, have you heard the gospel? Have you believed the gospel? Are you walking in repentance and faith? 
Are you growing in your love of Jesus? Has there been and is there gospel transformation that's happening in your life? What is your response to Jesus in the gospel? The chosen are also those that are holy. Holy means set apart, set apart by God for his purpose to be his people. You're holy not because you've achieved it by your works. I come every Sunday, I go to every MC gathering, I'm in a DNA group, it's doing well, so therefore I'm holy. No, you're holy because God has chosen you and set you apart to be his people. You're never in your own efforts going to make yourself holy in God's eyes. It's not going to happen. It's impossible. And then we are beloved, loved by God. It's in the passive voice. In other words, we are not the ones loving. God is the one loving. We are receiving his love. Chosen, holy, beloved. This is the only place in the New Testament where these three words are used together to describe God's people. Chosen is God's initiating act. Holy is is the result of this act. And love is the basis of this act. The same kind of language is used in the Old Testament where God speaks of the nation of Israel. Deuteronomy 7. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it's because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Then they were mainly chosen from one nation at that time, the Jews, and now God is choosing from among Jews and Gentiles, his people. I don't think that we should take this so far as to suggest that, well, when Jesus was on the cross, I was on his mind. We can water down salvation to make it really all about us. That we were the goal of salvation. We were the purpose of salvation. We're not the glory of the Father. The glory of Christ is the purpose of salvation. But I do think we need to be reminded that before you ever desired God, even before you knew God existed, even before you existed, God wanted you. God desired you. God chose you. God loved you. And before your first act of obedience... You are holy in God's eyes. Your standing before God was locked in before you ever did one thing right or one thing wrong. Your righteousness before God is set in Christ right now. Christ, in Christ, God sees you as righteous forever. God sees you in Christ as righteous, no matter what you do with the rest of your life. If you are in Christ and Christ is in you, you will always be seen by God as chosen, holy, and beloved, as righteous in Christ. This never wavers. I read an illustration in preparation this week that I think is helpful. Imagine, imagine it like this. Imagine there's, there's two racetracks. And at the end of each racetrack, there's a podium. And on one racetrack, it's, it's the racetrack that Jesus runs on and we know how jesus ran his race perfect sinless he never stumbled he never fell he never quit he never stopped and turned around he never took a day off jesus ran his race as the the only one who ever ran a race like this completely perfect and when jesus got to the end of his race he stood on the podium jesus receives the gold medal the victor's crown the World Cup statue, whatever you want to make the, the reward. That's what Jesus received because he deserved it. He earned it. 
The other track is our race, and you know how we run the race, right? We stumble, we bumble, we fail, we quit, we lay down on the track and take a nap, we climb in the stands and eat some popcorn and watch TV for a little while, maybe we run a little while, then we, we, we turn around and go the wrong way half the time. We're, our, our race is a mess. And at the end of our race, we go stand on the podium and we get what we have earned. Death. A guillotine. A hangman's noose. A firing. Whatever you want to make it. We get what we deserve. That's all we've earned. Because the, the, the standard is perfection and we've all fallen short and all we deserve is death. But right before we get death, Jesus runs from his podium to our podium and he's killed for us. He takes what we have earned and deserved. And the only place for us to go is to his podium. And we receive what he earned. The gold medal. Righteousness. This is what has happened because of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is how your father sees you. This is in theology it's called the passive righteousness of Christ and the active righteousness of Christ. This is how your father treats you as though you ran the perfect race. When you haven't. And Jesus paid the penalty for the race that you've running and you are running. As God's people, holy, chosen, beloved, loved dearly by God, this is what's happened to you and it's how God sees you all the time. Not a bumbling, stumbling failure. If the gospel is going to drive your transformation to become this kind of person, you have to see yourself as God sees you. You have to. The enemy is going to constantly tell you that's not who you are. Your Father in Heaven says this is who you are. Another way to, to feel this, Tim Keller brings us out. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has ever seen God, the holy God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made Him known. And of course, this passage is speaking about Jesus. It's one of the high uh, Christological passages of the New Testament. John uh, chapter 1 verses 1 through 18 Because God is spirit, no one has ever seen God, the only God, but the one who is at the Father's side, Jesus, he is the one who came to make the Father known. Remember Jesus said to Philip in John 14, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? The term here for being at the Father's side in verse 18 is very intimate term that speaks of the bosom, to be in someone's bosom. And we don't talk like that. But it's an incredibly intimate, close term. I can only think of five people in the world that I would invite into my bosom. And they all live in my house. As much as I love Kendrick and Scott, I'm not hanging out in my bosom with them, right? We're not, we're, I love them like brothers, but they're not hanging out in my bosom. That's just too intimate. It's too close. Very, very intimate. Now imagine this intimacy between the Father and the Son, this eternal closeness. Not physical bodies, but spirit. Souls intermingling. 
eternally tied together, totally entwined and close. Nothing possible could become between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. And then we read in John 17, Jesus' prayer in the garden, his great high priestly prayer. He's advocating on our behalf before our Father. And what does he say in John 17, verse 23? I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Verse 26, I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. This is the love you have from the Father and the Son, the love that they have shared for all of eternity. They invite us into it to experience it, to feel it, to know it, to share in it. As the Father loves the Son, so the Father loves those who are in the Son. As the Father enjoys the Son and is pleased with the Son, so the Father enjoys and is pleased with you. Guys, all of the time, all of the time, not on your good days, all your days, Not when you're doing good on one day, the whole day. The Father always feels this way about you. You are beloved. You are His people. Do you see why it makes sense to root the source of our identity, the source of our joy, the source of our acceptance only in Christ? Like what else would you look to to give you identity and acceptance before God? Your, your performance as a Christian, your performance in your job, your success as a husband, a father, a mother, a wife? Really? We know how up and down that is, but if you're rooted in Christ, if you're accepted before God is always in Christ, then you're always chosen, holy, and beloved because you're in Christ. And once this settles deep in your hearts, once this becomes your reality, not Guys, not just a concept in your head. Like, I don't think anybody here would say, I don't really agree with that. We all say, yes, that's true. Once it becomes more than just a concept, but it becomes what you experience, then we are free to go live out these amazing qualities because we know that we don't have to earn or keep or prove God's love for us, God's acceptance, God's favor. We already have it. We already have it. Now we go enjoy it. So God's people will demonstrate then the character of Christ. God's people will demonstrate the character of Christ. Because we are God's people, we've experienced the gospel in Jesus. We demonstrate the character of Christ. What does that look like? Verse 12 Uh, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. This is the character of Christ. It it is so much the character of Christ that you'll find, and I didn't put this in here, you'll find a parallel passage in the book of Romans that's just like this, that literally says, put on Christ. These qualities so identify with who Christ is, that in Romans, Paul doesn't say put on these qualities. He says put on Christ. And it's going to look like this. So this is the character of Christ. Compassion speaks to heartfelt mercy. It's an emotional concept. We feel with others. 
We feel for them. We feel with them. It's not somebody who's aloof, distant, detached. But you're emotionally engaged with people. You feel with them and for them. Humility, the opposite of pride. Humility is not downing or dogging yourself. Humility is not putting yourself down. Pride can take one of two forms primarily. You you have the pride of superiority where, you know, obviously I'm better than those people. Or the pride of inferiority where I'm the worst. I'm horrible. I can do nothing right. The little blue character, the sad character on Inside Out, if you saw that movie. Right? You want to experience both the pride of superiority and the pride of inferiority? Then just take five minutes to scroll through your news feed on Facebook. The people you're friends with that you think are losers? Ha! Glad I'm not like that. The people that are doing things that you're envious of, and they're in Disney World all the time, and they're taking vacations all the time, and their kids are perfect. You'll experience both the pride of inferiority and superiority. You'll be miserable. You'll be arrogant. Humility is not thinking less of yourself then. Humility is thinking of yourself less. Humility is not self-centeredness. Humility is self-forgetfulness. Everything is not about you. Everything is not about you. We're not living in your reality TV experience. Like the, the old movie Ed TV where everything was centered around Ed. That's not life. We, we come to a worship gathering and it's, you know, what, what do I wear and how should I look and what people think about what I wear and what I look. And when I, when I leave, it's, well, what did I think of the song and what did I think of the sermon? What did I think about how this person talked to me or didn't talk to me or looked at me or didn't look at me or what they wore, what they didn't wear? It's, it's all about you and what you experience in the worship gathering. That's not humility. That's pridefulness. Quit making your life about you. Life is not about you. It's about Christ. It's about how Christ uses us to impact others. Philippians 2, uh, 3 and 4. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. One of the ways that we can get off the rails in our kind of church where we, we begin these relationships by sharing our story. Great, I get to talk about me for an hour. That's easy. Who doesn't love to do that? We come to DNA. We talk about the sins we're struggling with and our need of the gospel. We spend so much time on ourselves, talking about ourselves, trying to gospel ourselves. This church can become all about ourselves. So we're consumed with ourselves, and it's not supposed to be about us. Humility says it's about Christ. Humility says it's about others. We don't think of ourselves first. We consider the needs of others first. We consider Christ first. That's humility. Kindness, demonstrating the goodness of God. Kindness is, this is how God has been good and gracious with me, and now I can pass it along to the the goodness and grace of God to others so they can experience it. Kindness is not, let me do something nice so you will think I'm nice, and then you will be in debt to my niceness. And I'm always going to one-up your niceness. It's like a niceness competition. That's not kindness. Kindness is lavishly showing God's goodness and grace to others because we've been lavishly shown the goodness and grace of God. Being able to receive kindness is just as important as being able to give kindness. Meekness, 
Or your Bible may say gentleness. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is humble strength. In the language of the New Testament, it actually speaks of a horse that has been trained and is under the control of its master. A horse is very strong and powerful, but it works under the control of its master, which all flows from humility. A person who is meek is a person who is not overly impressed with themselves. I'm not a big deal. I know who I really am. I'm not a big deal. And then patience or long-suffering. Used to describe mostly how God treats and deals with sinners. How patient God is with us. And we in turn share and show that patience with each other. You bear patiently with your children as they grow and mature and as they mess up. You bear patiently with your brother or sister in Christ as they learn to hate sin and love what is right. All of these qualities are shown perfectly in the character and the attitude of Christ. And these characteristics of Christ, these attitudes, lead to the actions of verse 13 and 14. So verse 13 and 14, we see that God's people demonstrate the conduct of Christ. Verse 13 says, Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. As we are compassionate, kind, humble, meek, gentle, patient, then we naturally will be a people who willingly bear with one another, forgive one another, and love each other. We bear with one another. This term is is often used to speak of enduring difficult circumstances or difficult people. Okay, listen to how one author puts it. Bearing with one another is nevertheless a first and necessary step in establishing community. The demand acknowledges that every Christian fellowship is made up of all kinds of people and that we will accordingly sometimes find ourselves in close fellowship with people who are very different than we are. For the sake of maintaining community, we will sometimes have to put up with, bear with people with whom we would not normally choose to associate. Is this kind of like a member of the crossing or something? It's crazy how relevant that is to us. Right? And that's part of being the family of God. Like, we talk about this all the time. We desire a diversity in our people that when people meet our people, they say the only reason y'all are together is because of the gospel. Normally, we wouldn't be that together and in that kind of relationship. Being in this kind of close community means eventually there's going to be conflict. For there to be no conflict or complaint in a relationship means there's no relationship, Right? We have and will hurt each other. Sometimes we'll do this intentionally. Sometimes we'll do this unintentionally. If it hasn't happened to you yet, it will. We're not trying to create a community as a crossing church that's devoid of conflict. That's pie-in-the-sky utopia. It's not possible this side of heaven. We're going to have conflict. Be ready for it. We're trying to create a community that responds to conflict with grace, love, and the gospel. A church with no conflict is a church with no community. It's a false peace, like a marriage with no conflict. There's not much of a relationship there. Either you don't really know each other, so you don't really ever fight about anything, or one person just really dominates the other person. And so it's only internal conflict. Real relationships mean there will come times when we don't get along, then the complaints come, and then we forgive. We forgive because we've been forgiven. We forgive in the same way we've been forgiven. Forgiveness does not mean that what was done against you was not wrong. 
it was. Forgiveness does not mean there there will always be reconciliation. Sometimes it's impossible. Sometimes a person we need to forgive is dead. Or if there was abuse, then there doesn't need to be reconciliation. There doesn't need to be a relationship sometimes. Forgiveness is not earned. Forgiveness is given, just like it was given to us through Christ. As a believer, you have to forgive. It says in the passage, must forgive. If you say there are limits to forgiveness in who you forgive and how much you forgive, then you are saying there are limits to God's forgiveness of you and how much he forgives you and who God forgives. There are no limits to forgiveness. You have to forgive. To withhold forgiveness is like drinking poison, expecting the other person to die. It kills you. Forgiveness is not the same as trust. Forgiveness is given freely. Trust is earned and built and takes time. Forgiveness is not a one-time act, but is something done over and over and over and over. To forgive is not to say that the wrong that's been done against you is forgotten. We're not God. We can't forget. To forgive is to say, I will no longer hold this wrong against you. I will no longer see you in light of the wrong that you've done to me. You can forgive Because God in Christ forgave you. And because God loves you and his love is in you. And love is the quality that not only unifies all these qualities, it binds them together. But love is the quality that empowers all these qualities and brings them to their fullest expression. Love empowered compassion. Love empowered forgiveness. Love empowered patience. Paul, we we can't emphasize love enough. Love is the summary of the law and prophets. Jesus said, love God, love your neighbor. Love is the greatest quality, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. You can be the greatest speaker, the greatest martyr, the greatest minister, the greatest prophet, the greatest this, that, and the other. Paul says, if you're not doing it in love, you've done nothing. Literally nothing in God's eyes. The love we show is only possible because of the love we've been shown. We don't generate or produce this love. God gives us this love, and it simply flows through us to the people around us. We're a conduit of God's love. So before we move to the last section, let me draw your attention to one thing. You read this list of qualities, compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving and loving, and it would seem that these qualities in some ways could be experienced by any community. Like... Like, is this precisely Christian? Do you have to be Christian to experience this? Many people in our culture would say this today. Any community can experience these things. But, but listen, within that list, first we see that forgiveness is driven by what God has done for us in Christ to forgive us. But mo- most importantly, see how this list flows out of verses 5 through 11. Paul says, put on then, or it could say put on therefore in verse 12. In other words, the people who experience kindness, compassion, patience, love, forgiveness, are the people who also, verses 5 through 11, put to death all manners of sin, which is distinctly Christian. So the community that Paul is describing is distinctly a Christian community. To fully experience these things, not in some surface level, self-reciprocal type thing that, that our world would create, our culture would create, to truly experience the fullness of this can only happen in the presence of Christ, in the power of Christ because of the gospel. It's distinctly Christian. Can 
lost people or our non-Christians, can they be kind? Can they be patient? Can they be nice? Yes, they can. But it's only a shadow of the substance that we find in Christ. It's evidence of God's grace to all people. But it's not the true experience that we have because of Christ. Fourthly, God's people demonstrate the character of Christ, the conduct of Christ, and lastly, the presence of Christ. Verses 15 through 17. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which you indeed were called in one body, and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. The previous qualities can only be truly experienced in community. You don't really know those qualities unless you share them with people. But the community focus gets more intense in these verses. We are called to be a community of peace. This is peace that's not the result of a ceasefire or the absence of conflict. This is peace that is is the result of the presence of a person, Christ. Jesus said in John 14, 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Jesus spoke those words in the context of the night of his arrest and the promise of the coming helper, Holy Spirit, the very presence of God that would descend and indwell the people of God once Jesus ascended into heaven. In other words, peace is not a feeling Peace is a person. We sometimes talk about peace as a feeling. Well, I've prayed and prayed and, and uh, trying to make a decision. and I'm, I'm, I don't feel a peace yet. I don't have a peace yet about this decision. And we turn peace into a feeling. Please don't make a decision based on a feeling that is arbitrary or fickle. Depending on when the last time you ate Chinese or Mexican food, how much sleep you've gotten, and the weather. I mean, all those things affect our emotions, and we're going to turn to an emotion to help us determine the the choices we make in life or the direction we go in life. Peace is a person. It's the presence of Christ, the Holy Spirit in you. And here Paul is saying this peace, we are to let rule our hearts. The language there in the New Testament is like an umpire. Rule. The final determiner, the final arbitrator, decision maker. Peace is the final umpire ruling our hearts. And because we are one body, we've been called to be a people in whom the peace of Christ is evident in our relationships. The peace of Christ is evident because the person of Christ is evident. The person of Christ is evident because the character and conduct of Christ is being demonstrated by each other to each other. Guys, we do have a mission to take the gospel to our city and to the nations. We talk about it all the time. We, we, leave this, we come together on Sundays, we, we're sent out back into the city to, to all be missionaries. It's not a job of the pastors and elders. It's your job if you're a believer. You're a missionary. It's part of our role to go into community where we live, work, eat, and play, to build relationships with people, to get to the gospel. To go to places like Jack Hayes and do projects and build relationships to get to the gospel. But don't, don't neglect the relationships God has already given you here in the Crossing Church. And to love and forgive and bear with each other, to show kindness, compassion, mercy, humility, patience, and gentleness. So that when the unchurched and the de-churched and those living far from the Father interact with this body, they see the peace of Christ 
ruling our hearts because there is the presence of Christ with us. That's also our mission. That's also our mission. That's what we are called to, he says there in verse 15. They see our devotion also to the word of Christ, which dwells richly in us. God's people have always been the people of the book. I haven't emphasized it enough in chapter 3. But everything we talked about, setting our mind on things above, putting to death sin, putting on these qualities, everything flows from a vibrant walk in the word. You will not find a maturing follower of Jesus Christ who doesn't, always have, doesn't also have a vibrant walk in the Word. You can't do it apart from the Word. The Word of Christ dwells in us so richly that we are teaching and admonishing each other. This doesn't just speak to the teaching that goes on in this context. It speaks to the teaching that happens within the body to each other. As we would love, it's our desire. We talk about it all the time as leaders. We would love for 100% of the spiritual and biblical counseling that you'd receive to happen in your DNA groups. Men with men, women with women. We, are, we have zero desire to set up a church where every time you need to talk to somebody, you're, you're looking for me, Scott, or Kendrick. No desire for that. We would love for 100% of what you need to, to, to hear the gospel, to speak the gospel to your brothers and sisters, to grow in the gospel, to happen on a week-by-week basis as you're doing life with that small group of brothers and sisters. That's what we want. Because the word of Christ is dwelling in you richly, and you are teaching and admonishing each other. Teaching, instructing, and admonishing. Hey, brother. Hey, sister. I see this in your life. Help me to understand that, that you're believing the gospel and you're repenting of sin in this area of your life. Are we, are we current? I say this a million times. Are we currently experiencing that perfectly? No. Even in the, the best DNA groups that we have, we're not experiencing this perfectly all the time. But we're in process. We're headed in that direction. So if it's not happening in your group, don't quit. Don't give up. Keep meeting. Keep building that relationship. Keep demonstrating compassion, patience, kindness to each other. And keep getting in the Word. Because that's the way the Word works. The Word works through the Spirit of God. The Word of God in the people of God transforms them by the gospel of God. And so keep pressing, keep pressing, keep pressing. And this leads all to worship, singing and praising and thankfulness and gratitude. And so much there. If I could go another 30 minutes, I would and walk through all of that. But see how worship is always in response to what God has done. The reason we do the sermon so early in our service is because we want a bulk of our corporate worship and song and communion to be in response to what God has done and what God has revealed. And this leads to a lifestyle where everything is done in the name of the Lord Jesus, which doesn't mean we go around walking, we, we don't go walking around saying Jesus' name all the time. In Jesus' name I do this. In Jesus' name I do that. But you live a lifestyle in which the character and conduct, the qualities of Jesus are present in everything you do. I mean, we've kind of, it's, it's kind of become hokey to say WWJD, but in, in our life it literally is. How would Jesus live out in these situations? How would he respond to these situations? That is a life that is Christ. The Christ life living through you. <laughs> As well as thankfulness and gratitude because everything is, is coming from the Father and it's evidence of His grace. So how do I see these qualities show up in my life? How do I see these qualities show up in my life? 
Paul goes back to verse 12. Put on. Like put on clothing because you're God's people, because you're alive to God, because the Spirit of God lives in you. As you walk in confession and repentance, verses 5 through 11, as you walk in belief in the gospel, uh, trusting in Jesus, seeing him, set your mind on things that are above, you see Jesus is the source of all this. Then you become a person that more and more has not only the desire to do these things, but now you recognize you have the power to do these things. And so all of a sudden, you, you, you get in situations where you're in the Word, you're, in the, you're filled with the Spirit, you're believing the gospel, repenting of sin, and, and people treat you a certain way, and all of a sudden, you have this desire to not treat them the way you've been treated, if it's bad. Like, I'll, instead of showing them anger or, or rage or hurt, I'm going to show them compassion, kindness, patience, mercy, grace. And so you begin to find yourself reacting to people and situations differently. It used to make you mad. You used to fly off the handle. You used to be impatient. And now all of a sudden you're being patient and gracious. And like, look, this is working. But not only that... You begin to take the initiative. It's not just reactive, it's proactive. All right, you're in this body. You're doing life with these people. And you, God has put a love in your heart for these people. And so you don't just think about each other when you see each other right now. It's easy to be the people of God right now. But when you're not around each other, you're thinking about each other. And, and the Spirit of God is putting thoughts about each other on your mind and your heart and you, you, so you're praying for each other you don't do that unless the spirit is alive inside of you. you you see something in a store you read something on the internet you hear a sermon and man I, that, that, that would really help out my brother or sister I'm going to send this to them not because I'm trying to fix them but I'm trying to encourage them you know what they're going through when they're not around you so you're checking on them you're texting them you're praying for them you're showing kindness, compassion, mercy, grace. When you, when you see them again, there's, there's this love you've had for them when they're not around that pours out on them when they are around. Hey, how you doing, man? I, I've been thinking about this. I've been thinking about that. I, you, just, you just begin to love each other. And we, we get this in the context of like a family, husband, wife, kids. Because we're around each other all the time. And so I'm, you know, I'm in a store and I see a bag of Red Hots. I'm thinking of Jennifer. I've got to hook her up. A box of Nerds, whatever crazy candies that she likes. Or the kids, same thing. But God intends for it to happen among all of us. And so you don't, you're not just reacting to situations as demonstrating the character and the conduct of Christ and the presence of Christ, but you begin to initiate and be proactive and you begin to take the initiative for the benefit of others. How can I demonstrate these qualities for my brothers and sisters? How can I demonstrate these qualities to my neighbors, my coworkers? Not to, to earn something or prove something, but because you are something. Right? So to the one who sees these qualities and their response is apathy and complacency. I just can't do it. See what Paul says. Verse 12, put on. Don't be apathetic. Don't be lazy. Don't just sit around and wait for everything to happen to you. The New Testament is filled with imperatives. Put on. Put to death. Set your mind on things above. Let's get with it. 
God has done everything for you, necessary for you to be this person. Now start doing something. Empowered by the gospel. You don't ooze into godliness. Right? It doesn't just happen to you. You do something in response to what God has done. To the one who's in despair because of failure, see yourself as God sees you, chosen, holy, and beloved, and know that this is who you are going to become. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God is going to make you like Jesus. For those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. He's going to finish it. And he's going to use your your successes. He's going to use your failures all together for your good and his glory to make you like Jesus. He is the author of our faith, the perfecter of our faith, the finisher. You're going to finish the race if you are his. Um, To those who is proud because, hey, I I see these qualities in me. Mostly this is who I am. Um, See that these qualities are far beyond what you're showing all the time. And there's much room for growth and maturity in you. In fact, if you're somebody who's truly proud because you think these qualities define your life, I can promise you the people who know you best would say otherwise. Go ask them. If you're really puffed up about how well you're doing in these things. And to the one who has, so, so that person needs to be humble. And to the one who has a good plan, you're ready to go to work, see that it is the Spirit of God alone who can produce this in you. Don't try and produce the evidence of the Spirit through the works of your flesh. The Spirit has to empower it. After I pray, we're going to begin to respond and worship to what God has spoken through His Spirit and his word, and we're going to begin with a time of confession and repentance. So after Scott plays a while, uh, Jess is going to come and read a, an ancient prayer that speaks to the glory of Christ and why we praise Christ and we thank Christ. And so it's a time to turn your attention to Christ. It's a time to, to deal honestly with your sins and spend time confessing and repenting of those sins. And after a period of time, when you're ready, you can come up and receive the elements, the bread and the juice. Just dip the bread in the juice and then return to your seat. Don't partake of it right then. And after a period of time, Kendrick's going to come up and lead us through a celebration that we experience through this meal of Christ, who Christ is and what Christ has done. And then we're going to sing. So let's pray. Father, we are so thankful that you are who you are and you've done what you've done. And because of that, we are your people chosen, holy, and loved. We thank you that there is no power in all the universe that can change that, not even our sins. You've created us to be this people who images this new creation, this new life in Christ that's, that's changed the world, that is changing the world. And so help us to respond in humility, help us to respond in repentance, help us to respond in faith. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.